birthing of this church. And it's really interesting how it gets all started. So, you guys know Ephesus, it was on Paul's second missionary journey that he actually went there first. Which some people think that it's the third one, because what happens on the second one is he kind of just lets it drive by. He goes right out of, uh, right over there by Athens, and he heads over to, Cor to uh, Ephesus, or after Corinth, and he goes over to Ephesus, and then he goes down because he's trying to get to the meeting in Jerusalem, or the, the feast they had down there. And that's where we're going to pick it up right here in chapter 18, verse 18. Says, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him, and he had his hair cut off at Centuria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue, synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you. Sailed from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he got up to greet and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Uh, that would be completing the second missionary journey. And then verse 23, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia, uh, in Bergia, or Geria, depending on what Bergia, yeah, in order, strengthening all the disciples. And so, what ends up happening is that he's just going really quick because he wants to make this feast. And he makes a vow before. A lot of people that said that he rated himself completely of all traditions of the Jewish tradition, completely isolated himself from the nation or to the Gentiles. But here is one of those verses that's very key in showing that he completed the that he still kept to some of those traditions. Even though he wasn't obligated, that's where he made the line and he said, No, I'm in grace. However, he was still following these different traditions and showing that he was not completely knocking like what the Judaizers were saying about him. We went through all that. But in this one, what happens is he shows up in Ephesus, and he's got a, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, I mean Priscilla and Aquila with him. And what happens is he stops there real quick, and it's interesting because it's such a fast visit. But yet, what does he do? He goes right into the synagogue to teach them that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. It's interesting because it doesn't say he went there several times, it just said he went into the synagogue. And it seems like it was a very quick time. So we don't know if it was a couple of days that he was there. Most likely it was less than a doesn't give us any hints of him going in there several times between the times, right? And the different times that they meet there. So he just goes in there really fast and then he leaves. But he leaves two people behind. And that's all we're showing in his second missionary journey with Ephesus. And then it picks up later with Ephesus and telling us a little bit more about it in verse 24. And I think it's awesome because here's one of those places that Paul's talking about. It's just where God, he puts a man in there really fast and then he brings another man and another couple in there and help this church or help these people that have just heard the good news. He doesn't just leave them abandoned. 
there's been several times where you know you guys have heard missionary stories or even stories here in the United States where people have gone and visited different places and people beg them, don't leave, we can, don't leave us. Like you just gave us this great message. We understand who Jesus Christ in our lives now. Why are you leaving us? It's like you just birthed a child and now you're gonna abandon us. And we've heard those words before. My parents have heard it down in Mexico and then in the, with the Taramara Indians down in the canyon of them asking, Why are you abandoning us? And they use those words. It's like who's gonna grow us up? And it's like, you know what? The Holy Spirit led us here, he's gonna be responsible for you guys. For sure he's gonna bring somebody else because God does not abandon his people. It just might not be the same person. And it's unfortunate in our minds what happens a lot of times. Being the humans that we are, we think that we have just played this important role in these people's lives that God has anointed us and called us to, which all that's very true. But the next step we take is that everything will fail if I leave the picture. <laughs> that I'm the one that needs to continue with this, or else it's all going to fall apart. Because who else is going to know the things that I've brought these people through, and how are they going to grow without me? And it's unfortunate there's a lot of churches out there with a pastor or some of the elders who definitely, they don't want so stuck there, it's like, everything's going to fail if they leave. And it may fail because it may have built it all around themselves, right? I know you guys have experienced that, and you've seen that in other churches where it's been built around one man, and he either falls into sin or he leaves, and that whole entire church collapses because it's not built around Jesus Christ. You know that's what Paul was calling sinner in and he talked about the name of Jesus Christ. And so here comes this other guy in verse 24 of chapter 18. It says, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross the occasion of Achaeum, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples Seriously refuted the Jews publicly, showing through the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And here's another one of those parts where it's like, are you serious, God? You brought somebody that wasn't even fully educated in the word to come and raise up these other people that may be Christians. Because if you look at it, it says that he didn't understand it completely. Right? He didn't have all the truth. He had the truth, but it wasn't fully completed yet. And he knew of the, the baptism in John, which what was that baptism? And seeing that there's sin, you need to have the Savior and that repentance that needs to take place. But they didn't understand yet, or, or Paulus didn't understand, we're going to see that the Ephesians didn't either because Paulus didn't teach them, but they didn't know what the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they didn't know what that Holy Spirit being upon them and the spirit of the Holy Spirit was because of Paulus didn't know. And it's very interesting that God would bring somebody else like that in to grow up being a Christian with Paul and just introduce Jesus Christ. It's something in our minds that we don't comprehend because we have to have somebody that's completely qualified and come in there to be able to raise up these people, right? I mean, otherwise, they're going to take them off and go straight, and that does happen. And we know that there's been people that are crazy, but when the Holy Spirit's involved in it, like what was going on here, he brought in exactly the right person to do that. And also, it wasn't just a promise that people were there, but who else? Nicola Priscilla, which had been raised up by Paul, right? And they had that truth that was accurate. It was the they said in verse 26, and they took them the way uh, of God more accurately. And so they understood the scriptures and what they meant. They had that mystery, you know, shown to them through the ministry of Paul. And so they were able to come alongside of Paulus and help him to understand the full picture of what it means to be in Jesus Christ in this baptism of the Holy Spirit, through this Holy Spirit empowering them to come. And so it's an awesome deal to get to see this little body going on and these people encourage each other. And I, I think it's awesome what the Paul is because. guy, and so many times there's people that are so full of pride and where God's brought them already that they won't listen to somebody else coming in and try to show them the scriptures and the light. And so what happened with the Paul is he's just like, yeah, this is awesome. And he went on to the next town and they sent him with you know, letters of recommendation. And they said, you know, trust this guy. And what happens is he goes in there and he vigorously refuses the Jews, the Jews publicly. Like, this guy was not ashamed of the gospel. He's very powerful 
guys know where else it's talking about with Apollos? If you go into verse 1 of chapter 19, it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, finding some disciples. We know Paul was where? Well, he just went through the whole thing. Corinth as well, right? We're talking about Paul here. Let's go over there and see what Paul's attitude to Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. And this is one of those things that, you know, when, when Sean took us through this, he was talking about just the way that the body works and these people have completely separated themselves into little halves, you know, into those little cell groups. It was identifying with a man. One is Paul, one is Paulus, and that's what Paul's addressing here is saying, who they are under. He says, Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers as the Lord gave to each one. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as one master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds upon it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's his perspective of Paul's. Which is so awesome because Paul is completely relying on God and saying, God is the one that's going to do it. And I like what he says there too. He says that, um, according to the grace, and he says, lay the foundations. He says, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. It does not say, let each one take heed on how his other See where the tension is? And Paul, what is going on is he's planted this seed that's there, and he's allowed God to go in there and take whichever man he wants to put in that position to go ahead and water it, because God is the one that's going to bring the increase. But there's so many times where man has to have his hand all over it and get it all contaminated. You guys know how that goes sometimes. <laughs> where now it's got this whole process of this is the way it's going to look because this is the way I've done it for so many years. And this is the way that God's working me in this period of You know, it's unfortunate because the whole idea of God giving the increase has been taken away because we have this formula saying, this is how you're going to plant a church. This is how you're going to grow a church. This is how the church needs to look. Where did you come up? If God did an awesome work with you, you know, it's time that you go do an awesome work for him in another place because he's called you to that place. And you see it so many times when pastors will come in and it's interesting what a lot of them will, will do is they'll completely hire a new staff. You know, they'll come in there and just completely clean the house, not because of any opposition or, or it's evil what's going on. It's just because they need that freshness. They need that new mindset, right, to be able to pour into it. Because there might be opposition later on. Of, well, the old pastor didn't do it that way. Okay? But God's given the increase, and here's how he's told me how to go ahead and water this church. Because the other teachers have done the church. The other pastor planted it. I think it's just awesome, and it's a great uh, um, example for us to follow in showing us that our duty is to go give that word, go and plant that seed. And if the Lord wants to bring somebody else to water, that's what he's going to do. And that person will be exactly the perfect person that God needs. Not for us to go and take heed of that person and how they're building it, so that they take heed of themselves. But vice versa, too. It's not that we go look at how the person planted it and say, that was all wrong, I wouldn't everything as we continue and build on it. And you guys might be thinking, well, this is just a ministerial, this is like leadership in the church, this is pastor work. But that's not the way it is. You guys have interacted with people daily in your own lives, at work or wherever it might be. And you've already seen some, you've heard the gospel, right? You start talking to them and you find out, oh, you've already heard this. Let's build upon it. Let me tell you, this is what you know, and you get to see these things where they've converted to Jesus Christ, but they've all of a sudden walked something that happens in the level of life. You don't go back on it and say, that's disgusting and it's horrible, I can't believe that person did this or that. You go to Jesus Christ. Because that's who they need. They don't need to know who they are, right? So, an awesome example there is what Paul is talking about and what uh, he shared with us and just how those two guys work together and just getting this church. 
pause there at Ephesus. He comes back, right? This is his third missionary journey. Okay? And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is verse 2. So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, And what then were you baptized? He said unto John's baptism. And Paul said, John and me baptized with baptism of repentance. There it is. Saying to the people that they should believe in him who will come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied. And then watch what happens right after this. Now the men were about twelve in all, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened who did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, they were multitude departed from them and turned into disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. And this counted for two years, or this continued. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. You guys see how many people heard about the word? All the people in Asia, right? These guys are pretty serious. He starts out with these 12 guys. Interesting, he has that number there. But they start going into the synagogue until things start becoming what's going on in this interview, and then they go over to the school of Tyrannus. And they start preaching the gospel. And they go on for two years of this, just telling everybody about Jesus. And what's going on is they started out in Ephesus, but A lot of people think that the book of Ephesians, and they'll, they'll argue this, which doesn't matter to me, but they say that the book of Ephesians was not directly meant for the church in Ephesus because the book of Greek documents say, or don't have the name Ephesus in the very first verse of Ephesians. Who cares? It was supposed to be circulated. We know that for sure because guess what? It got circulated twice. Right? It was a message that everybody needed to hear. And there were some different things that were pertaining to that church that we can get and pull out of, especially when we look at but it's something that we can totally take out of ourselves and things that can change our lives, things that we can go back and refresh our own hearts and understanding what we're seeing in Jesus and what we need to be walking like in Jesus. So, Paul's there, he goes ahead with these guys and he starts doing these awesome miracles. It's the next part we're going to read in verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of, hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and then some of the uh, internet Jews, I call them internet Jews, because you know that's not the word, you know, they got their information from the internet, and they know it all. So, <laughs> itinerant Jews, exorcists, took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by Jesus, of whom Paul preaches. It's hilarious. Verse 14 Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jew, Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirits answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was left upon, or was leaped upon them, on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came, confessing the also, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted out the value of them in a total of 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. There's a lot of awesome things. Look, this is what happens. There's a huge revival that takes place. And it's neat, and it's interesting that God used a different avenue than what he was doing with Paul there. I mean, it's really interesting to think about handkerchiefs, right? All of a sudden, it's Paul's handkerchief, and that's what happened. But the point of it was, again, is who were these people that were doing this? They understood the power that came from God. They understood it was not from Paul. And they got to see this whole first day of experience, and it all spread around this town, which this town at this time was about 100,000 people, is what they said. So it was a pretty big city. It was a big port at that time. The Roman Jews was a lot. And it was just this massive place that we'll get into about But this was a main hub there. All these people heard about these things going on. And these guys, these Jewish guys at this time, you know, what does it say? Uh, that they're, they're sons of this guy, the chief priest. Well, hey, they're supposed to be pretty holy, aren't they? And here they are trying to go and cast out these demons. 
So then what happens is, of course, the enemy has to counter all this excitement, doesn't he? Because there's too many people getting saved, and it's like, whoa, let's put on the brakes here. So what happens is the enemy steps in. And you guys go over to verse 21 of chapter 19. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Dea, uh, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia, two of those who, uh, who ministered. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. And you guys know verse 9, and also this verse in the way that we call Christianity. It's them going the way, everything else uh, For the certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who, did, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, uh, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana uh, may be despised and her magnificence destroyed in all Asia in the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius uh, and Aristarchus, uh, Macedonians, which Paul's train of travel companions. And then Paul wanted to go in to the people inside the Carlisle. And some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent Some therefore cried one thing and some another, that simply with confusion most of them did not know why they had come together. And it just goes on and it talks about this whole crazy thing going on. I'm not going to read through it all. They ended up grabbing a Jew out of the crowd, and because he was a Jew, they started crying out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians for two hours. Two hours straight of just yelling out this, this thing. They had no idea. And you guys know what it's like with a crowd. Right? We know there's several times in the United States where some sports team wins, and all of a sudden everybody goes crazy, and somebody decides to go and torch a car, and then it's on. Let's go break windows, let's just do crazy things, and it's, it's a riot. Right? And people just don't even understand why they're doing it, but hey, everybody else is doing this, let's go for it. I know what happened with these guys. There's this whole thing that started up, this whole emotion, they want to be involved, this riot starts up, and they move into this, they have no 
They were known and they had one of the seven wonders of nature. Of Artemis. Artemis is another name for Diana. Artemis is the Greek name. Diana is the Roman name. And what they were is they're pretty much the same God, and, and you have to know it back then what would happen is they couldn't blend their gods together. Now it's important that this wasn't completely the Greek God. The one that everybody else in all of the Greek lands there worshipped. Artemis was different to them. Artemis was basically Mother Earth to all the Greeks outside of Ephesus. And what it was is that she was portrayed as uh, the protector of nature, the protector of the forces and things. She was always portrayed with having a bow and arrow and maybe a hunting dog and a deer. And she was known as the hunters. Uh, the Spartans, back when they were around, they looked at her as the war god. Okay? And they would go and pay tribute to her. So that's kind of Greek theology was is kind of like all over the place and kind of made into what God you wanted to. Well, there in Ephesus, they had influence from East Asia. East Asia had another god, and they kind of had this more of a fertility god. And so this Ephesus, this, this Artemis of Ephesus, or Diana of Ephesus, was a different god. And that's why all the other Greek ones, they'll show a picture as pretty, uh, I don't know, not risque, kind of like the Ephesus one. The Ephesus one, you guys have ever seen one of the statues of what she looked like? She had several, uh, some people say they were breasts, and then people say that it was kind of like, uh, I don't know, just bubbles or whatever. There was a bunch of different things, acorns, one of the things. Anyway, she had a ton of lumps on her chest. I mean, like a full, it all went all the way around, okay? What it was in Ephesus is it was more of, she was a god for tea. And they looked at her as the mother mother the mother of, of all. And it gets very interesting and one of the things that they think about her, but this temple that they erected to her, and we'll go back into her a little bit after this, but this temple that they built there, they built it several times, but the last one that they built was massive. And people wanted to come and see it. This thing was 420 feet long, 225 feet wide, and actually 60 feet tall. 127 columns, massive columns. It had to be raised up, and because this whole thing in Ephesus was it was built kind of in a swamp, and so the way that they leveled this thing out is they actually took charcoal, and they took uh, different hairs from different animals, and they would just stack one layer upon another layer, so they built it up high enough to where the flood wouldn't really get it, because some of the other temples they built before were actually damaged by flood. So this thing was raised up, you can imagine, higher than the rest of most of the town there, and just huge, massive plate. It's also known as one of the Treasury there. They also use um, all the different uh, ships coming in, or it was kind of like a bank back then. Um, the one of the this guy that used to travel around back then and he would visit the different wonders of the world. Um, let me see what his name was. Too bad because I've never heard of him. Uh, Anna Peter of Sidium. This guy. Here's what his account was back then. I've seen the walls and hanging gardens of ancient Babylon. Right. Heard about those, but that was an amazing thing to see. Uh, the statue of Olympian Zeus was over in Rome, which is just a massive statue, and unbelievable how it was, how they got uh, marble to stand up like it did. Uh, the Colossus of Rhodes, uh, the mighty work of the Thai pyramids, and the tomb of Mausolus, which was an Asian uh, king. These different things that they, this guy had looked at, and they were unbelievable things. We know the pyramids, right? That's one of the things. But when I saw the temple of Ephesus rising in the clouds and all these other wonders were put in shape. That was his perspective on this place. It was unbelievable. Now after they've gone there and what's going on is that you see this whole thing and they feel like they're attacking this God. Now we know Demetrius was all about the money. I mean, he had some sense in him that yeah, you know, this is not the things that we're making by hand. This can't really So, Artemis, this goddess, what it was is it's her title was the mother of all. You guys ever heard another title like that? Mother of all? Yeah? Interesting, isn't it? 
Catholicism that would lead to marrying the nun above their flock. Um, this, like I said, is she's a different one. What was is that they would go and they also give her the title of Great Mother, but they also came, like I said, from the East, uh, Asia. They brought in the different gods. You guys know in, uh, like, Nigeria, the goddess of Sibeli. Uh, that was another goddess that was exactly the same. So each one of these places had a god that looked just like Diana, the god of fertility. And another one was Syria's goddess, was uh, Antag uh, Antagiatus, uh, Babylon's god, and Assyrian's god. You guys know this one, Ishtar? Ishtar was the same, almost exact same. Osseus uh, is Aristide, that's their goddess, and then Canaan, you guys know this one, Canaan was Asherah, was their goddess that was exactly the same. So what it was, is it just seems like the enemy always kept setting this up. We know from the Old Testament that two of these gods, the way that they would honor her is they had the, the priestess prostitute, right? And what's gone on is that they've said in Ephesus, this was the exact same thing where they had these priestess um, the, the prostitutes or whatever. When I was going through and researching it, a lot of it was brought off of what these other gods in Canaan and in Babylon and in Assyria had done. There wasn't any direct evidence in Ephesus that that's exactly what was going on. Not to say that it wasn't, but it's super hard to find any evidence outside of people just saying, well, I'm going to conclude this because these other goddesses were this way, so this must have been the way over there. <coughs> you know what I'm saying? So we don't know for sure. I couldn't find any evidence to back it up. We do know that this thing, it was against what God had set up, right? And they are worshiping this goddess of fertility in the way that she demonstrated herself. Now, the thing we do know and the things that are recorded is that she was the one that would help give birth to gods. So, in animals and women, when they're giving birth, they would call out to her and ask her to come help, the women especially. They would ask her to come and make a speech, delivery, and everything, and help them. She's also known as the one that takes life. So she would give her life and take her life. So when a person was suffering, they would ask that she would come so she did have a very important role in their culture in saying that she would over life and death. Because who we know comes in and talks about another person that is definitely Right? And that was there in such a conflict there because the enemy had such a stronghold there with this goddess that he didn't want to budge. And here comes this other one saying, here's the true God that has the power over life and death. And he starts preaching the resurrection, which is something that hadn't happened. So, this guy, Demetrius, sees what's going on. He doesn't really have anything that happens, but because he sees what's going on all day, right, he sees all the trouble that these guys are causing. And taking followers with him, right? <coughs> what's interesting is that he says that he's afraid that the whole world will not come after her anymore, right? Remember those scriptures that we read? Well, what happens is that's exactly what happened. There is that 400 years later, the gods come in and they completely destroy everything. And after that, they kind of just written her off. And now we know that Diana was not worshipped now. They've done like these different versions of the Middle East, but we know that that's just one of the really great. And what did become a very strong, big stronghold over there was Christianity. It's awesome that God just came in there and completely turned the place for himself. So that's what we get to see a lot of what's going on in Ephesus in this church that he's planted. So Paul takes off this riot happens, he ends up, nothing happens to him, uh, and they end up, he, he leaves from there, and he goes over, and he's saying, you've got to go to Macedonia in verse 1 of chapter 20, and then we'll pick it up over in verse 17 of chapter 20 in Acts. And this is when he's finally sealed over to Miletus. Uh, he sent to the Ephesians and called for the elders of the church. So he goes over there where it's a little bit Serving the Lord with all humility. 
terrifying to Jews and also to Greeks. Repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, The chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me more, nor do I count myself my, my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His ministry to those guys, right? That was his ministry to these guys. And indeed, now I know that all that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Powerful verse right there, because what made him guilty of the blood of all men? First thing he's saying is innocent, you guys just mull that one over. So he's talking about sharing the gospel and he's talking about there's blood on his hands that he didn't say anything. Just like if there's you know, in the scenario where there's a house on fire and you keep your mouth shut outside of it, you know people are probably burning up in that house. Uh, who am I to say anything? They might not believe me. I'm not going to say anything about that. It's evil. It's evil that you don't say anything. Right? And it's all that verse there. You guys just go and meditate over that verse and it's such a scary verse. Verse 27 says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The most powerful verse in the entire chapter is the whole verse by verse. He gives all the most powerful verse. He tells the king who he is and his father and say, He gave him all the counsel. And he shared the counsel with him, the whole counsel. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased. For I know this, that after my departure, seven wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock also from among yourselves, and then will rise up speaking perverse things and draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every man in the day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend to you, you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one so Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities, and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said, No one can be a member of sin. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and then they all that agreed with him fell on the balls of their knees, sorrowing most of all. guys that come and sit down with them, they're, they're sad, but the words that he gives them so that they can go on in the ministry and do what God has called them to do. If you look at it, it says, take heed to yourself and to all the flock. And that's one thing that actually will feed us when we, when we go over to Revelation. Let's go over to Nathan. Go over to Revelation chapter 2. chapter 2, it's one of the first churches he talks to. Right? We know from that one little part where Paul brings with the elders over, he tells them, stick with the word, you guys. Take heed. Right? Follow these things that I've taught you. And then you look over in chapter 2 and he says, the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are tested those who say they are apostles and are not, yet found them liars. Remember what he said? Be careful of people coming from out, but also be careful of guys inside the church that are persecuting them. Look at Jesus' commandment. 
guys have done that. Verse 3, and you have per, uh, persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Awesome confidence. Everything that Paul asked them to do, it looks like they followed through with that. If you would look at what we've done and, and, and the things that we've gone through, I think we can say, I feel this is the way it is. I feel that these are the things I've, I've pursued your word, Lord. Yeah, there's things I stumble in, but I've continued to grow in what you've asked me to grow in. And it almost has become a duty to us, and I think that we've been disciplining ourselves to do over and over again. We've been doing it for so long, and then watch what happens. This is where it kind of hits a little bit heavy. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove the lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to him who overcomes, I will give thee from the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise of God. And so what you see with these guys is everything looks like they're doing awesome, doesn't it? I mean, all, all the things that they're going through, all the things that they're very, they've sacrificed themselves to, and completely omitted themselves from the different the world around them. And you guys have seen that the idolatry that they're living among is pretty harsh. Where a whole town would get together for two hours, dedicate themselves for two hours to say one saying. I mean, usually in a football game or even a soccer game, you don't see for a lot that long. Maybe in a soccer game, they can do it. They're going all day, all day. But these guys, what had happened is that they've become so dedicated and so devotional in those things, but they've lost their first love. It's like, how long can that happen? You see all the things that he commits them on? But then he talks to them. What was their first love? That love of Jesus, wasn't it? That love of Jesus. So they were busy. This is what the church was. And then this, let me, let me point this out. This letter, Revelations, I think, was written mid-90s after Jesus, right? After the death. Uh, the the um, letter to the Ephesians was written about mid-60s. Okay? So this is almost, we can say it's almost now, all the stuff that we talked about in Acts and all that stuff we just went over, Paul actually didn't write this, this epistle to the Ephesians, epistle to them, about 10 years later. So he met with those elders, and 10 years later he writes the book of Ephesians to them, the letter of Ephesians. And then later on we have Revelation that talks about where they're at and what this church was. And this church had definitely taken and held on to everything that they could get a hold of, but they lost their first love. When I went over this, it was something that was such a times, many days, we can even fake it. We can make it look like, yeah, Jesus is ruling my life today. <laughs> you know, I don't know what your problem is, but I got Jesus today. I'm just going to put a smile on him and just bear it through. But what had happened is that this church become very busy, they're separated, they're sacrificing, but they had heart trouble. They had heart trouble. They abandoned their first love. And so, what we do for the Lord is important So what we do for God is very important, but why are we doing it? And that's what this question in, in, in Revelation is talking about, is, is going back to, yes, you guys are doing your duties, but how are you doing it? You lost that first love. The first love is devotion of, to Christ, that fervent, personal, and unlimited. Uh, it's excited, it's openly dis displayed zeal. It basically looks like the honeymoon. When a person first comes to Jesus, I mean, they're a little crazy, aren't they? You're like, whoa, settle down. <laughs> you haven't. You, have, you need to settle into your rut and, and figure these things out, okay? Because you're a little bit. You're, you're making me uncomfortable. You're getting out there a little too much. But watch their passion and how much they want to go out and tell people about Jesus because they saw their life completely completely change. So they're excited about that. But that's what he's worried. He's saying you guys lost that. It's like the husband and wife of their marriage. You know, you guys know in your own marriage, you take your marriage for granted. What ends up happening? You guys are just living. 
dining, not making it cold, they just getting here and doing those things. What ends up happening in, in life becomes that routine, and that marriage becomes that routine. What happens to that marriage? We're slowly fading away, won't it? It's something that we have to get to. It's something that we need to maintain as well, right? And so in our own lives with Christ, what's going on? Have we been being busy? Have we been separated? Have we been sacrificing? But yet there's still that heart problem. It's possible to serve and sacrifice and suffer for Jesus' name, but not really to love our Savior. So they're busily maintaining their separation while neglecting their adoration. And that's a thing that we need to really look at. Are we really adore our Savior? If the reason that you guys come here, or the reason you guys serve at this church, what is it that's what a Christian looks like, that's what we've been told, that that's how you're supposed to look. And maybe you started out in a great thing, like, God, I want to serve you in any way I can. I want to jump into whatever you have for me. And we're, we're excited about it. And at first, it is our love for him. Right, let's just do it. And then after a while, it slowly becomes more and more maintenance of him. And that adoration starts falling lower and lower and lower. Where it becomes a duty, I know that I've church in Ephesus, when we go through the book of Ephesians, it's so awesome because it's broken up into two parts. It's what Paul wants to remind them of their rich, awesome life in Jesus Christ. And being a part and being those adopted sons and daughters, what that looks like. And you have this massive bank account that's not being transferred. All this awesome spiritual riches that he's been given to us, that he's been given to us through Jesus Christ, but it's just sitting there. That's what going to talk about how we walk in this way. Okay, here's what you have. Here's the doctrine. Now, what are the emotions? What are the you walking out of? And that's what he's going to take the Ephesians through. And we get a seed through Revelation. That's something we're going to go back to and just be reminded of that we just don't set ourselves in just the, the emotion or just the, the uh, I just said the word. In those first three chapters, we don't just look at what we have and leave it there. We don't just know that we have those riches don't just go and do the duties or sacrifice ourselves without the adoration of our Savior. Because in the church in Ephesus, they're an awesome group. They see the great things that they did. And I would say that here at this church, we've had an awesome group. There's so many people here that want to serve, and they get involved, and they do things here. They serve us in different ways. And we serve them. But going back to the heart issue, Sometimes it goes that way, doesn't it? Especially when you get into those mega churches with outreaches and stuff. <laughs> those guys want to get in that, that, that pleasing eye of those that are high up in leadership. And they lost those that were holding them down without Jesus Christ. And so, just that encouragement that you guys take from this. And what Ephesians talks about, and we'll go through it in Ephesians 20 times, it's talked about love. Love is brought up. And so labor is not a sub for love, neither is purity for passion. You need both to be fulfilled. Labor is not a sub for love, neither is purity for passion. This is the different things. Go back and look at your guys' own lives. Check it out and see and put it up against these scriptures. Am I following through on the whole part of what Ephesians has been helping me with? I've probably completed that duty because I've had a lot of years of practice. Love you. Thank you so much that you've implemented these things out of our lives, Lord. We call us in our own life. And so many times we get trapped up in just making sure that I'm doing what you've asked me to do. And it's not out of love. It's we know there's a duty and we know that we're honors and we know that we're Christians. Lord, we just want to come to you. We want you to show us. We want you to show us what different ways that we need to return to you for our first love. The things that maybe we even need to things that you're challenging in our hearts, Lord, that we take those with us, Lord. That church in Ephesus, they're so excited. They're filled with the encouragement they took from you, Lord, that they absorbed from 